VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We are moving towards a degree of data sophistication and communication and micro-targeting sophistication that really blurs the line from marketing to manipulation and that those of us working in the political space, you know, should be thoughtful of. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. We're in the home stretch, y'all. Two weeks till election day. Uh, now, I know a lot of my listeners are not on these shores, uh, but I also know a lot of people really around the world have a great interest in seeing what happens and, in particular, seeing Trump tossed out on his ear. Am I biased? Of course I am, uh, but it's my show, so there you go. Anyhow, as pr- I promised about a month ago, um, as we got closer to the big day, I said I'd be having on more companies that are kind of in the political realm to give you guys a sense of, of some of the machinery that is really pulling the strings, not just in this election, but in elections, again, kind of around the world and electioneering and kind of democracy more broadly, and even non-democracies, just kind of how this is working, what role technology is playing. And so with that in mind, this week I had on Micaiah Pruel who is the founder of a company called Avalanche Strategies, which is a startup. And like a whole bunch of these left-leaning startups was founded right after Election Day in 2016. Now Avalanche is interesting because it has created an online polling system that employs AI to interpret your deepest, darkest emotions. So it doesn't just ask, you know, what candidate do you like, A, B, or C. It poses open-ended questions about issues or people and then kind of burrows into those words that you use to try to understand what it is you're really saying. The upshot, of course, is that if you can get to the core of an issue, what really concerns people, then you can craft a nice, tight message to you know that speaks to people. And in theory, it helps your person or your ballot measure win. Now, depending on how a technology like this is used, of course, it can be powerful terrifying could be both and i should say not having used this myself i can't tell you if it even works but clearly machine learning systems are very good at crunching through mounds of data to find trends so are your emotions or is politics any different i'll let you decide so without further ado i give you makaya pruel who is the founder of avalanche strategies Enjoy. 
So if you could just start before we get into kind of what's happening now, the story, the, the yeah. founder story, so to speak. Avalanche was founded in the wake of 2016. Uh, I come to this work having served on both the Obama campaigns and in between working a lot in communications with causes, especially in the climate movement. And that's where I met my co-founder, Tova Paglero. In that work, especially working on climate, trying to move people on an existential issue that a lot of people actually don't take a lot of action on all the time. Uh, you end up spending a lot of time in the social sciences trying to figure out how to create a message that's actually going to move people. What you find is that the way you do that is by uh, not just throwing facts at people, but connecting with values, connecting with emotions, speaking not just to what people care about, but why. And so we came out of that work with a really deeply held view that that is how you create successful campaigns. Emotional resonance being the key to move people, moving people being the key to political power. And so in the wake of 2016, we looked at that and our diagnosis was that once again, progressives had failed to learn that lesson. We had failed to effectively create messaging that really resonates with people and that moves people to action. And so that's the problem that we set out to solve with Avalanche. And our belief is that the biggest challenge to effectively creating emotionally resonant messaging is deeply understanding people. If you don't really understand where people are at, it's really hard to create messaging that moves them. And so that's been our mission ever since. Uh, we do public opinion research and we do it in a manner that provides the greatest depth, something that you might associate with something like a one-on-one -on -one conversation or a focus group, but at much larger scale so that you have that sense of validity and confidence and ability to really understand large groups of people at scale. And so we've been working ever since uh, 2016 with a number of progressive clients and organizations all across an array of issues and areas, all in that same orientation towards moving people uh, to action. And are you a technologist by background or are you more kind of a, a, a political person? Because it sounds, what were you doing on the, the Obama campaign, for example? Yeah, so I came up uh, as a community organizer. And I think right. that really is is where I developed a deep belief in the power of story and in the power of personal relationships to move people. Brought that work to the climate work, but after spending a bit of time there, also became really interested in the technology side of the equation. Hmm. And so through a tangent in schooling, ended up switching over to the venture capital side of the climate question, working in clean technology venture, working with startups, helping to fund technology startups that could really make a difference and provide solutions uh, to the climate challenges. And that's actually where I was working when 2016 uh, happened. And so at that point, really thought, okay, let's put together this background in business and technology with the previous background in political communications and build a political technology company. That kind of realization, okay, we can maybe we should do something about this. Was that a kind of wake up in the morning, day after election, okay, we need to do something type of situation? It was literally that, actually. I was, I was in San Francisco on a business trip, and I had breakfast with uh, the person who had been my my boss, a man named Alfred Johnson in San Francisco, and we both looked at each other across the table and said, oh my God, we have to do something. He went on to found a company I think you're aware of called Mobilize America. Oh, yes. Um, and I went on to co-found uh, Avalanche. So it was very much a morning after what the hell do we do uh, type of reaction. But I think the longer I've spent in the space, the more I see this consistent challenge as something that's going to be with us for a long time. Uh, this isn't a one cycle type of challenge. And what is that challenge, though? Because I'm trying to that's what's so interesting about what's I mean, I know the polls say what they say and that, you know, it looks like Biden's comfortably in a lead, but I don't take it for granted. <laughs> but just the I mean, say what you want about Trump or even in the UK, uh, the whole Brexit campaign. I mean, it's a very and this is politics 101, super clear kind of 
clean message with not a lot of nuance. It's just like, this is what it is. And it resonates with people. Why do you need a technology to kind of do that, to help you do that? Yeah. So I think if you think about 2016 in America, in the wake of that, there was a lot of critique of polling. And I, I would put the critique into really two camps. One really has to do with whether or not we were listening to the right people in the first place. Were we sampling the right people? Were we talking to people in battleground states? Were we talking to a group that was representative of those who mm. actually showed up on election day? But there's another category of challenge that I would articulate as even if you do have the perfect sample of people, are you listening them to them in a way where you can actually understand them? Because it turns out that people don't fit perfectly on a multiple choice question that there's so much more depth and so much more complexity and things like emotional saliency and how much people really feel and why they feel the way they do is really, really hard to capture with quantitative polling. And so that's the second challenge that we've really mm. gotten into. And I, I was actually studying in the UK during the Brexit referendum, and I was as surprised as anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that's another example where the polling wasn't necessarily quantitatively wrong, although there were challenges there. It was also that there was a degree of energy and enthusiasm yes. that drove turnout that just didn't show up in the polling because people weren't measuring emotion. They weren't measuring levels of engagement. They weren't measuring sort of what one of my staff members calls oomph behind how people are expressing their views. And so can you just talk, explain what your technology is and what it does and how it yeah. kind of gets to, cracks that nut? Yeah, so it's um, conceptually straightforward and technically fairly complicated. Um, <laughs> think of it in this way. We start by asking people open-ended questions at really large scale. This happens online. So instead of saying, which of these five issues is most important to you, we say, what challenges are you facing that you really care about or that you wish government would take action on uh, open-ended? And we do that at a really large scale. And so that generates a lot of open-ended text. Um, and that text is incredibly rich data. If you think about the way that someone talks about something as a sign of how they feel about it. So I'm a survivor of childhood cancer. When I talk about healthcare, when I talk about the need for families to have uh, health insurance protections for pre-existing conditions, the words I use, the tone I use, the specific phrases and metaphors yeah. I use all reflect how I think and feel about that. And so that's the principle that we bring to analyzing this massive amount of text is being able to look very closely at the words that people are using to much more deeply understand how they're relating to something. Some of that analysis is fairly straightforward, being able to just say, what's the biggest challenge that you face day to day, not make any assumptions and find a lot of surprising things. We're doing this you know, all across the electorate in 2020 in America and finding all sorts of local issues and regional issues mm -hmm. and all sorts of issues that are coming up for people that pollsters frankly don't even think to put on their list of top 10 issues. But the analysis can also get more, much more complex. We can look at emotional association and really get into the why, not just do you care about COVID right now, but why? What's really the emotional piece? Is it about your kids? Is it about your own individual security? Is it about your lifestyle? What is really driving that attitude in the why? And so it's that ability to analyze open-ended text at really large scale. That's the sort of the technical heart of the company. And that enables us to provide that type of depth you would associate with something like a focus group. But at the scale, typically our samples are between one and 10,000 respondents. And oh, we can wow. go larger than that. And so how do you reach them? It's all online. So, but is that like via Facebook ads? Because you spoke earlier about like polling and it, it feels, and I'm not an expert in this field at all, but it does feel quite antiquated. 
Hmm. A lot of it, it's like requires a landline. Okay, so you're only <laughs> pulling old people then. You know? um, so it does feel like there's a whole evolution that needs to happen with polling more broadly. But just trying to figure out like how you reach these people and how you convince them to actually fill out a survey about their deepest concerns. You know, I'm just personally speaking, I'm like, if I got that, I'd be like, I'm not doing it. I'm not filling yeah. this out, you know? Absolutely. So I'll speak first to the the sampling, how we actually reach people. What we've built is you could really think of a, as a marketplace of different sources that we can draw on. There is a pre-existing marketplace actually of what are called panel providers. These are people who have a community of people hmm. who are open to answering surveys typically for a non-monetary incentive. So maybe they play a game like Candy Crush and they get an ad that says, hey, take this two-minute survey and you get a free jewel or something like that. Right. But there may be other types of communities. Each of those communities has a bias, right? And so this is something that typically comes up in polling is if you build your own panel, just because of the way you build it, you're going to get old people or young people or something. And so what we do is we actually build a marketplace of these so we can construct a sample by balancing the bias of different panels against one another and be able to pull as needed to fill a sample quota that's much more representative by being able to draw from those. Um, we can also supplement through direct recruitment for digital ad or other types of means of reaching people uh, directly by SMS or digital ad or other channels. So it's very much customized to the project and the client and the needs. And what we've really built is the ability to pull respondents in lots and lots of different ways to best meet the needs of, of the project. Does that mean that you necessarily are skewing younger then because it's all online? You would actually be surprised um, how <laughs> <laughs> how how little age skew we actually do find in this. The biggest challenge in, in survey research right now is sample bias, but we find that typically the challenge has to do more with sort of political engagement, sometimes education, sometimes gender. Those are the things that we end up using other computational techniques like weighting and quota setting to be able to balance against to make sure if we're in Florida, we're doing sample for Florida electorate it is going to match exactly the age distribution, the gender distribution, so on and so forth of the Florida electorate. And we're able to do that through the, through the approach that, that we build the sample with. And then just on the, the actual technology, because just thinking about this logically, how does an algorithm figure out that, you know what, I'm talking about mm. education, but what I'm really talking about is job security because maybe I'm thinking I need to pay for private education and that's what's really, you know, like how does that, how does a, a math equation burrow into my emotional truth? That's a very good question. And the short answer is uh, it doesn't all on its own. So when we got started at Avalanche, we you know hired a bunch of very smart people and we looked at the promise of a fully automated solution to try to answer this. Uh, named entity recognition, other types of natural language processing to be able to say, okay, here's the topics people are, are mm. talking about. Typically, when you use these tools, you get not very good results for the exact reasons that you're talking about. So if we took a question of, say, a response to why do you think immigration is the most important issue in America yeah. right now, and you throw that at Amazon, Alexa, typically you'll get something like these people are talking about politics or immigration. Um, it's very high level, doesn't have at all the type of nuance that you need yeah. for political strategy, the type of work. So. What we've built instead is very much a human in the loop system. And what that means is it's actually a process where we have human experts, political strategists, analysts who review subsets of the data. And based on what they're seeing and also their own strategic lens, they decide here are the themes that we want to look for. 
So we're doing a question on immigration. We say, look, references to citizenship, the word citizen in this particular case really means something. It's got a bunch of baggage to it that maybe it doesn't in a different situation. We want to really look for that reference. And so humans are creating and defining the themes that we're looking for. And then it's the software that then is able to say, okay, I can learn what that theme is and I can go find that. And then a final step in the process of, of human review and quality assurance to make sure that the validity is at the very high degree that we insist it is. So it's very much a human and machine integrated process where the human's doing the, the nuance of saying, in this case, here's what really matters that only a human can do. And then the software is saying, okay, given that definition, we can go find that across a sample of 10,000 responses. And the sausage that comes out of the other end of this machine is... Say I'm, I don't know, a Democrat in Georgia. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to craft a message that really kind of gets at people's lizard brain or their deepest concerns, whatever it may be. I can use your polling data to actually see through the responses to actually people are concerned about X, Y, Z. These are the issues we should hit or these are also, this is also the way that we should talk about them. Yeah, so, so there's a, a number of different types of outputs we offer. Typically, you can sort of think of it as starting with what? So just what matters to these people? In that case, open-ended questions, as we were talking about, have a lot of promise. And maybe you find things you didn't learn to expect. But then you drill down another layer. And what you really want to know is, okay, why do you care about that? Why are you really concerned about mm. transit in Orlando? And you want to get at the why. And then within that, you might even go deeper to say, okay, are there actually values associations? Are there emotional associations here that are really helping drive that why? And so the output to our client then in that case is, here's what to talk about, but also here's how to talk about it. Here's specific types of framing language. Here's specific types of topics, maybe messengers, other things that we think are going to resonate with the audience, given that deeper understanding of not only what they care about, but why. And I'll also say we also do a fair amount of work in the message testing space. So maybe we do that first mm. and then the client says, oh, we're going to mock up, you know, 10 different ads that we think are a good idea. Let's put that back in the system. Let's run it, see not only how people respond to it quantitatively, but then again, say, oh, you hate this ad. <laughs> Tell us why. Yeah. Or this ad makes you angry. Tell us why. And again, that open-ended ability and reaction to content can be a really powerful application. And do you only work with progressive slash Democrats? We do. Uh, only with progressives. We work internationally as well. So yeah. we're not sort of strictly partisan, but we do have a very strong values lens for... And can you talk a little bit about the actual founding of the company? So you have this breakfast day after election, like, oh my God, this is, you know, we need to do something. This feels like a, and correct me if I'm wrong, but just like trying to build a company to do this does not sound easy or straightforward. Just in terms of the technology, it feels like it's kind of nailing jello to a wall a little bit how was the process of getting funding you know making the pitch and like kind of who was key in that so i think the first piece is that we spend a lot of time talking with people to really understand the challenge just like any other startup or any other entrepreneur a ton of time sunk into customer discovery and yeah. really figuring out how to do that we piloted in early elections with you know very very bootstrap solutions that got us to a place where we had a good sense of the challenge and the solution, but we couldn't have gotten past that without folks like Higher Ground Labs, who you've spoken with, Shomik and Betsy over there, who really take chances on early stage concepts mm. that, quite frankly, 
have a impact emphasis and a return uncertainty that other investors are not as interested <laughs> in. Um, and so yeah. the folks at Higher Ground Lab, the folks at Luminate, the folks at New Media Ventures who came on early and had faith in the idea when it was early stage and have supported all along were absolutely critical. And turns out we've actually built a very successful business uh, as a result, but we could not have gotten that way. And then the other piece is I would give a lot of credit to our early customers in the democratic ecosystem. We weren't the only ones who had some shell shock coming out of 2016. And there was a lot of openness to testing new ideas across the ecosystem. And so, you know, big unions, big advocacy organizations, all sorts of folks were actually opening up, you know, their C-suite time to talk with us, talk about how mm. we could solve their solutions and quite frankly, adopting these types of approaches quite quickly. So I would, I would give our customers a lot of credit as well. And how much money have you raised in total? We've raised 1.2 million. And how big, How many people are you now? We're at 15 and okay. we've been profitable for the last year. Wow. Profitable. Very un-Silicon Valley. <laughs> I know it's, uh, it's not very in vogue these days, but we still like it. <laughs> to enjoy more of the latest news from Silicon Valley, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, one question that just like listening to you talk about all these issues is is kind of why I started. It was just like, why is it harder for, you know, one side of the political spectrum to get a, their message across? I mean, this is not rocket science, you would think. I mean, but, you know, there's a whole wave of populism sweeping through, obviously, America and Europe and lots of different places around the world. And it's quite effective. What's behind that? Why is it hard for the other side to kind of craft a similarly alluring message? I think one of the challenges is that on the progressive side, we often see a tension between emotional resonance and fact-based communication. And I would argue that that's a false tension. And it's actually the fact that we think that's a tension at all is actually part of the problem. So right now we're seeing a huge challenge with compliance with wearing masks. Yeah. America, yeah. all over the place, right? And so many progressives sort of instinct on that is like, oh, well, let's show people these 10 academic papers that show that it actually is a good way to prevent the spread of coronavirus and then people will see the facts and then they'll be convinced. Nobody's reading an academic paper. It's not going to work. Yeah. 
nor like, you know, particularly wordy New York Times articles about the same topic, <laughs> not necessarily that helpful. Um, yeah. What's much more helpful, I would argue, are stories. You know, the story, we saw this in the DNC, the story of uh, Kristen Urquiza, whose father was an early Trump supporter, believed in Trump, trusted his every word, didn't wear a mask because of that, said Trump didn't uh, knew that he didn't need to wear a mask. He got COVID and he died. And she believes that her father passed away because Trump and because of mm. that message and that inability to connect with people. And so I, I think, you know, there's a story like Kristen's and there's a fact-based argument. And I would say a story like Kristen's is going to be much more powerful. And so what I believe we saw, one of the biggest successes of the Obama campaign was its ability to use fact-based messaging in a emotionally resonant narrative type yeah. style. So there was always storytelling. There was always connecting to the humanity behind the message. And so I, th I think step number one for progressives is we really need to continue to learn that lesson and continue to embed that at the highest level. But step number two is once you've decided, okay, great, I'm going to tell messages that are stories, I'm going to connect more deeply with people, then the question really becomes how, what is the right story? What is the right message? What is the right frame? How do we really connect with people? And that's where I see Avalanche's greatest value is, okay, you want to connect with people more deeply. You really need to understand where they are. You really need to understand what they care about, why they care about it, what's really moving them, and then think creatively about, okay, let's use an exercise of empathy here. Let's really mm. think about the world through those people's perspective and how would I want to be talked to. And that's what the richness of this data really enables, is it really is an exercise in empathy at the end of the day. It really is the ability to really understand people, put yourself in their shoes, and then think about, okay, how would I connect with this person if they were across you know, the coffee table from me? Yeah. What kind of conversation do we have? And then build your creative and your messaging based on that understanding. It's funny you mentioned empathy, uh, and it's a theme we talk about a lot on this podcast, is like the death of it, specifically when we're talking about social media and the the kind of hiving people off into their silos and you know their echo chambers and the this middle space where people can kind of you know to use you know the cliche of walking another person's shoes nobody's doing not nobody it's much harder to do that these days it's much less common people are just like you're crazy i'm right and that's all and they just have two people yelling that you're crazy at each other and nobody understands I'm just wondering, Absolutely. when you think, when you're doing this work, do you see that kind of manifested and how do you get around that? We do. It's a, it's a huge challenge right now. So one of the opportunities we've had in 2020 is to deploy our research right at the very beginning of unprecedented crises. So, you know, it was less than a year ago, the president was impeached and then COVID and then the protests following the killing of George mm. Floyd, we were doing research immediately thereafter. And some of the most striking findings that we found this year is in that first wave of research, right as the protests were kicking off, the mass broad support that the protests had was very unexpected to me. Mm. More than 25% of people who were leaning towards voting Trump were saying these protesters are doing mostly the right thing. And we looked wow. at why and how they were relating to it. And they said, look, this is horrible. Like, this is clearly bad. Obviously, protesting this is a very reasonable thing to do this problem needs to be fixed. And so I would say in that moment, there was this sort of outbreak of empathy for a moment as a nation. Um, and we <laughs> saw it in the data yeah. um, in this absolutely heartbreaking case that is that is one of far too many. And we watched the data over weeks. And what you could see is you could see the effect of the media bubbles. You could see mm. that every night Fox News was playing clips of burning buildings from June and they're playing it every night 
through September. And by the time you look at our September data, you can see large chunks of the American public saying that these protests are mostly violent. In other words, they're believing something that is in fact not reality. Mm. They think that every night major cities are burning down in America. That is quite simply not the case. And I would say it is because of these media bubbles. It is because if you watch Fox News or quite frankly, if you watch the other side, you see a very particular version of reality. And as a relate of social media and as a relation of other sort of um, disaggregating of social experience, exactly as you're saying, we lack the opportunities for these crossover conversations, for being able to see the same reality together at the same time. And I think that's one of the greatest challenges that we have. I think the way that we are able to address that, our part of the puzzle is being able to see across the boundaries. So for our clients being able to say, look, these folks that you want to engage, they're in a really different world that is hard for you to imagine. It's hard for you to put yourself in the shoes, but this data can help you do that. And maybe you can reach them more effectively by reaching them where they're at. But I'm the first to say that's only the beginning of a solution. I mean, there's structural and regulatory issues around how the social media and how the media environment is built more broadly that are driving this division. Well, that's I'm just just thinking about all that. And we've written a lot about misinformation and actually we're writing about it again this week. It does feel like it's it's so, for whatever reason, um, I, well, I think it's crafted to be powerful, but it is, it just, it spreads like wildfire and it kind of appeals to people in a way that they just kind of want to believe it. And when you're trying to craft something that is just like, as you say, based on facts, trying to just like transmit a message, mm against a kind of swirl of misinformation like you're talking about like this idea that most of the protests are violent when that is factually false you know do you stand a chance (laughs) yeah i i think it's a fair question and and what i would say is what we're really doing is leveling the playing field Mm. if what conspiracy theories have that is their only asset is their ability to tickle the brainstem in a certain type of way what we are doing is looking for an ethical and fact-based way to level the playing field so that a fact-based argument stands a chance so that it can also connect with people and also have resonance and at least level the playing field it's not a panacea to overcoming all misinformation but i think it's a really important piece of the puzzle because as we've seen in climate as we've seen in any number of places combating misinformation with the litany of facts is a recipe for failure yeah and so we need to be able to combine those facts with a deep understanding of people to actually, you know, have these types of conversations. And I think, you know, it's not only the type of the message. It's also the things we're talking about here. It's the messenger. Is it someone you trust? It's the nature of the medium. It's all these pieces have to come together for us to be able to to address the misinformation challenges. So this all sounds like it could be quite powerful. And it sounds like very kind of something that would fit perfectly. Like I'm sure like Nike would love something like this. I mean, they're actually quite good at you know, messaging, but like, you know, any private company trying to kind of, you know, sell a product. Yeah. Is that, is that something you guys have delved into or that you will? Um, because it does feel like if you're kind of have figured out a way to understand people on a deeper level, I mean, any company advertising for anything would want to do that. So that is a question we are grappling with very much right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll just be very candid. It is something that we are interested in doing in a very intentional manner. So we're founded as a value-based company. We have a certain worldview around really, really caring about equality of opportunity for people in the world. To the extent that there are corporate clients, other types of clients that you know reflect those values or we think resonate with those values, uh, then we're very open to those opportunities. 
there clearly are some players that are contrary to those values. So we're very much in the category of business that is really trying to figure out how to draw those kinds of lines. And I, I think we invest in that a lot, trying to figure that out. We don't mm. think there's a, there's a straightforward, simple solution to it. But we definitely are a class of technology company that thinks we have a responsibility, given what it is we are building, to think very carefully about how it is used. We don't take the view that, well, we'll build it and it's up to users. And if they use it for good or they use it for bad, that's none of our business. We very much are of the view that if you're going to build something, you also need to take some amount of ownership for how it's used and to try to wrestle with those hard questions. And is there a kind of an esprit de corps, so to speak, with you? Because, I I mean, speaking with Showmake a few weeks ago, he's invested in whatever, 36 companies. It does feel like there's this whole kind of explosion of companies like yours, of people who had no shit moment and were like, oh my God, we have to do something. This is this you know we have to get involved in a more serious way is there something like that where you guys are all kind of obviously a lot of people on the the democratic side starting these companies all pushing toward a same goal i'm just wondering you know how how much of that is like a quote-unquote a team very much so yeah it's you know groups like higher ground labs or new media ventures serve this ecosystem purpose where they're able to pull people together and we benefit from learning from one another um, and also generally just directly supporting one another in the cases of some companies building direct integrations to support one another and, and our customers so i think it that very much is the case it's been one of the sort of bolsters of morale through this period of times and it's been quite frankly a pretty long four years and one of the most heartening pieces of it has been being in it with uh, with a cohort of folks who are also you know taking a lot of the same risks, facing a lot of the same challenges, and working together through it. And how do you guys feel about the kind of the you know the arms race, the di- the kind of the social media digital arms race that has kind of broken out in politics? Obviously, the Koch brothers have put a lot of money into this, which was quite effective in 2016. How do you feel like four years later as we approach you know the big day? Is that playing field level or is it still like, you know, there's, is it a kind of a back and forth about who's kind of, you know, got the edge as far as you can tell? I think it's at least level. I think the, you know, if you look across the higher kind lab portfolio or you look across even some of the internal innovation happening at some of the larger entities on the regressive side, I would say that it's tremendous in the last four years. I would also say, you know, if you step back and you look at the political environment, you typically see sort of reactive innovation cycles where yeah. one side gets their ass kicked and they wake up the next morning, they say, oh my God, we've got to do something. And the other side, maybe they win for eight years or so and they start getting complacent. Was that what happened? Because I was just, that was my next question of like, okay, you, you were working on the Obama campaign. It was lauded for being super innovative in all these different ways. And then all of a sudden we wake up and we're like, oh yeah, the Democrats had their heads up their proverbial and like in terms of the all the online world and we see the results like what happened (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think you know there's there's a number of structural challenges in terms of where the innovation actually sits following campaigns as a result of campaign finance law as you explored with shamik the other the other week but i think there also is a personal element to it which is you know people at a certain point in their life, throw their entire hearts into building something, it sort of rises to being, you know, a successful solution that's adopted mm. and becomes the new standard. And it's really easy for those people to either move on with their life or for that new standard to sort of just become the status quo. Right. And we see this all the time. And frankly, you see it outside of the political environment. You know, you see startups become incumbents and 
I would say what you see in the political space is just a faster cycle of that. Right. And so I think there's a there is a cultural piece to this. And part of what I think is really exciting about this cycle is how much the innovation is happening in a sustainable, self-contained ecosystem outside of the political environment, where a company like Avalanche or a company like Mobilize can continue innovating year after year, cycle after cycle, right. in much less of a boom and bust kind of a dynamic. I think that's going to be a major advantage for the progressive side moving forward is that sort of externalized innovation ecosystem where we can build these successful companies that, quite frankly, have a market incentive to continue to innovate, to not get complacent, to keep you know pushing the envelope the same way that any other private company would. And I'm just thinking about that, like, you know, what does the future of elections look like? Because if you have all of these private companies that have, you know, come onto the scene like yourselves and many, many others on both sides, and it does feel like, you know, obviously the world is moving and has moved online. And you have a lot of these really powerful tools, like, you know, what you guys are doing is kind of trying to intuit, you know, deep emotions with AI. That's really cool if it's cool. And it's really scary if it's, if, you know, it can be really scary. So it does feel like there's a, there's a potentially dark, very dark version of where we're going. I think there is that potential. And I think it's a potential that people in this space need to not have rose-colored glasses about and need to take responsibility for. I, on the one hand, personally believe, you know, in answering your question, I think a lot of this, quite frankly, needs to be addressed at the level of regulation that addresses not just the campaign environment, but also, quite frankly, the marketing environment for private companies and privacy and any number of much larger technology regulatory issues that I think ought to trickle down in their impact into the political yeah. space and probably have some nuance for political-based communications as well. So I would see it as all part and parcel of this larger challenge where we are moving towards a degree of data sophistication and communication and micro-targeting sophistication that really blurs the line from marketing to manipulation just across the board. And so that's, I think, a societal and regulatory question that needs to be very aggressively addressed and that those of us working in the political space, you know, should be thoughtful of. At Avalanche, we have very much a lot of internal norms, a lot of practices around how we draw that line, how we find in our recommendations a place of empathy to truly understand where an audience is, is at, but really, quite honestly, have some internal controls around not, as we see it, coming up with ways to push an audience to do something that from our evidence, it seems they don't want to do. Right. Um, because that's the line of manipulation, right? As soon as you're trying to, you know, read someone's intentions and the motivation of the behavior and say, I'm going to get you to do something that you probably don't want to, that's manipulation and that's not what we do. And so we have a lot of internal controls to prevent that. But, you know, as a good Democrat, my belief is that private companies and their internal controls are only so good. And we really need to have some regulatory pieces in place that can ensure that that happens and also that it levels the playing field so that it's not just progressive organizations working ethically and other groups, you know, being the wild west. Lastly, before I let you go, how you feeling? Three weeks, we're three weeks, we're three weeks away. I am feeling guardedly optimistic. I spend most of my days looking for every problem that we can see and figuring out solutions to it. In 2008, we used to have an, an expression on our team in New Mexico that was, you would lose the game if you ever thought you were going to win. And so you never wanted to lose the game. You spent all the time not losing the game. And so I am working very hard right now to not lose the game, to be very focused on uh, what's in front of us. But I think, you know, there's also to be, you know, and on a somewhat sober note, 
there's a lot of work to be done for America to have a successful November, no matter the outcome. And so a lot of my energy and attention is going into institutions and governance and democracy and ensuring that we come out of this as an effective democracy, no matter who the president is, Yeah, as one of our top pieces of focus for the next few weeks. You mentioned earlier you, you were doing work on climate change. I just spent several days in the fire zones in Northern California mm-hmm. and kind of saw firsthand what that yeah. all was. Yeah. Climate change is like a swirl of misinformation and destruction and very high stakes and all that stuff. How do you guys think about that in terms of transmitting a message? Because when we're living in California where we've, you know, for two months didn't have breathable air, it's all very visceral. It's all very real. But even people are still disagreeing over, you know, oh, it's land management. Oh, it's climate change, blah, 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 blah. And it just makes me think of like, you know, when you're transmitting a message, when the the entire state's on fire, that's a pretty clear message, it would seem to me. Mm. But even that is, is up for debate. Yeah, it's, it's, it is an important question. I'll give you a little bit of optimism first, which is, you know, when I was working in climate change communications circa 2010 to 2014, the polling was incredibly stable and incredibly depressing. You would be lucky in a closed-ended poll if climate change would break the top five issues for issues an that... average. Oh, really? Of, yeah, it typically, you know, definitely came after the economy, definitely came after healthcare, usually came after education, after national defense. Somewhere down there would be climate change. This cycle, and it's even built since 2018, climate change is in the top two for a majority of Americans as a as a critical for a issue. majority of Americans. Yep. Yeah. Wow. When we when we ask people open ended, you know, what is really oh, so this isn't even this isn't even multiple choice. This isn't like no. oh, okay, wow. Now that said, COVID has definitely you know through a through a twist in, in things. But I would say the overall salience of climate for voters in America, where we have the data, is the biggest shift that I've seen in quite some time. That's a not enough. Would completely agree with you. And I would connect that shift though with the lived experience. That as depressing as it is that in California we still could be arguing about management versus climate change. I would, if you step back from it, I think we do see a big shift when we see hurricanes, we see forest fires, we see heat waves. We really do see that those experiences really do move opinion on on these things, and they shift the debate from sort of a theoretical ideological debate yeah. to a very concrete lived experience. It's a narrative, not science, being shouted yeah. out about science. Yeah, and and I think you know there's few things that impact political views like stories and like individual lived experience, and I think the tragedy of these events in no way you know makes it a silver lining, but it does have the impact of genuinely shifting views on this. And so I think part of what we really work on is how do we accelerate that? How do we shift these views faster so that we don't need another 10 years of California burning down before we have enough political will to do something about it? Cool. Well, I think those are all my questions. Thank you for taking the time and, um, you know, good luck. It's going to be an interesting, I think it's going to be an interesting couple months, not just three weeks, but, um, yeah. Fingers crossed. I absolutely agree. And thank you so much for, for the time and the conversation. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Micaiah for taking the time to talk. Um, you guys may have noticed I said I made one reference to being three weeks from the election. I actually inter- did this interview at the end of last week. So that's why that's that. But anyhow, um, thank you as always for listening. If you have a moment, just take a moment 
give a rating and review to the podcast. Trust me, it really does help. Keeps the bosses happy, makes it easier for other people to find the show. It's just all around a good thing, and it makes me makes me happy. So do take a moment and do that, and you can find me, as you can every week, most weeks when I'm working, in the Sunday Times newspaper online at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. And that's it. So I hope, as ever, since this pandemic started, my sign-off has changed to stay safe, stay sane. So please do both. And I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.